Section 22 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. Book 3, Chapter 3 manifold are the tastes and dispositions of the enlightened literati who turn over the pages of history some there be whose hearts are brimful of the yeast of courage and whose bosoms do work and swell and foam with untried valour like a barrel of new cider or a train-band captain fresh from under the hands of his tailor this doughty class of readers can be satisfied with nothing but bloody battles and horrible encounters they must be continually storming forts, sacking cities, springing mines, marching up to the muzzles of cannon, charging bayonet through every page, and reveling in gunpowder and carnage. Others, who are of a less martial but equally ardent imagination, and who withal are little given to the marvellous, will dwell with wondrous satisfaction on descriptions of prodigies, unheard-of events, hair-breadth escapes, hardy adventures, and all those astonishing narrations which just amble along the boundary line of possibility. A third class, who, not to speak lightly of them, are of a lighter turn, and skim over the records of past times as they do over the edifying pages of a novel, merely for relaxation and innocent amusement, do singularly delight in treasons, executions, Sabine rapes, Tarquin outrages, conflagrations, murders, and all the other catalogues of hideous crimes, which, like cayenne in cookery, do give a pungency and flavor to the dull detail of history. While a fourth class, of more philosophic habits, do diligently pore over the musty chronicles of time to investigate the operations of the human kind, and watch the gradual changes in men and manners effected by the progress of knowledge, the vicissitudes of events, or the influence of situation, if the first three classes find but little wherewithal to solace themselves in the tranquil reign of Wouter Van Twiller, I entreat them to exert their patience for a while, and bear with the tedious picture of happiness, prosperity, and peace which my duty as a faithful historian obliges me to draw. And I promise them that as soon as I can possibly alight upon anything horrible, uncommon, or impossible, it shall go hard, but I will make it afford them entertainment." This being premised, I turn with great complacency to the fourth class of readers, who are men, or if possible women, after my own heart, grave, philosophical, and investigating, fond of analyzing characters, of taking a start from first causes, and so haunting a nation down through all the mazes of innovation and improvement. Such will naturally be anxious to witness the first development of the newly hatched colony and the primitive manners and customs prevalent among its inhabitants, during the halcyon reign of Van Twiller or the Doubter. I will not grieve their patience, however, by describing minutely the increase and improvement of New Amsterdam. Their own imaginations will doubtless present to them the good burghers, like so many painstaking and persevering beavers, slowly and surely pursuing their labors, they will behold the prosperous transformation from the rude log-hut to the stately Dutch mansion, with brick front, glazed windows, and tiled roof, from the tangled thicket to the luxuriant cabbage garden, 
and from the skulking Indian to the ponderous burgomaster. In a word, they will picture to themselves the steady, silent, and undeviating march of prosperity, incident to a city destitute of pride or ambition, cherished by a fat government, and whose citizens do nothing in a hurry. The Sage Council, as has been mentioned in a preceding chapter, not being able to determine upon any plan for the building of their city, the cows, in a laudable fit of patriotism, took it under their peculiar charge, and as they went to and from pasture, established paths through the bushes, on each side of which the good folks built their houses, which is one cause of the rambling and picturesque turns in labyrinths which distinguish certain streets of New York at this very day. The houses of the higher class were generally constructed of wood, excepting the gable end, which was of small black and yellow Dutch bricks, and always faced on the street, as our ancestors, like their descendants, were very much given to outward show, and were noted for putting their best leg foremost. The house was always furnished with abundance of large doors and small windows on every floor. The date of its erection was curiously designated by iron figures on the front and on the top of the roof was perched a fierce little weathercock, to let the family into the important secret which way the wind blew. These, like the weathercocks on the tops of our steeples, pointed so many different ways that every man could have a wind to his mind. The most staunch and loyal citizens, however, always went according to the weathercock on the top of the governor's house, which was certainly the most correct, as he had a trusty servant employed every morning to climb up and set it to the right quarter. In those good days of simplicity and sunshine, a passion for cleanliness was the leading principle in domestic economy, and the universal test of an able housewife, a character which formed the utmost ambition of our unenlightened grandmothers. The front door was never opened except on marriages, funerals, New Year's Days, the festival of St. Nicholas, or some such great occasion. It was ornamented with a gorgeous brass knocker, curiously wrought, sometimes in the device of a dog and sometimes of a lion's head, and was daily burnished with such religious zeal that it was oft-times worn out by the very precautions taken for its preservation. The whole house was constantly in a state of inundation, under the discipline of mops and brooms and scrubbing-brushes, and the good housewives of those days were a kind of amphibious animal, delighting exceedingly to be dabbling in water, insomuch that a historian of the day gravely tells us that many of his townswomen grew to have webbed fingers like unto a duck, and some of them, he had little doubt, could the matter be examined into, would be found to have the tails of mermaids. But this I look upon to be a mere sport of fancy, or, what is worse, a willful misrepresentation. The grand parlour was the sanctum sanctorum, where the passion for cleaning was indulged without control, in this sacred apartment no one was permitted to enter, excepting the mistress and her confidential maid, who visited it once a week for the purpose of giving it a thorough cleaning and putting things to rights, always taking the precaution of leaving their shoes at the door, and entering devoutly on their stocking feet. After scrubbing the floor, sprinkling it with fine white sand, which was curiously stroked into angles and curves and rhomboids with a broom, after washing the windows, rubbing and polishing the furniture, and putting a bunch of evergreens in the fireplace, the window-shutters were again closed to keep out the flies, and the room carefully locked up, until the revolution of time brought round the weekly cleaning day. As to the family, they always entered in at the gate, and most generally lived in the kitchen. 
to have seen a numerous household assembled round the fire one would have imagined that he was transported back to those happy days of primeval simplicity which float before our imaginations like golden visions the fireplaces were of a truly patriarchal magnitude where the whole family old and young master and servant black and white nay even the very cat and dog enjoyed a community of privilege and had each a right to a corner here the old burgher would sit in perfect silence puffing his pipe looking into the fire with half-shut eyes and thinking of nothing for hours together the good vrouw on the opposite side would employ herself diligently in spinning yarn or knitting stockings the young folks would crowd round the hearth listening with breathless attention to some old crone of a negro who was the oracle of the family and who perched like a raven in the corner of the chimney would croak forth for a long winter afternoon a string of incredible stories about new england witches grisly ghosts horses without heads and hairbreadth escapes and bloody encounters among the indians in those happy days a well-regulated family always rose with the dawn dined at eleven and went to bed at sunset dinner was invariably a private meal and the fat old burghers showed incontestable signs of disapprobation and uneasiness at being surprised by a visit from a neighbor on such occasions but though our worthy ancestors were thus singularly averse to giving dinners yet they kept up the social bands of intimacy by occasional banquetings called tea-parties these fashionable parties were generally confined to the higher classes or noblesse that is to say such as kept their own cows and drove their own wagons the company commonly assembled at three o'clock and went away about six unless it was in winter time when the fashionable hours were a little earlier that the ladies might get home before dark the tea-table was crowned with a huge earthen dish well stored with slices of fat pork fried brown cut up into morsels and swimming in gravy the company being seated round the genial board and each furnished with a fork evinced their dexterity in launching at the fattest pieces in this mighty dish in much the same manner as sailors harpoon porpoises at sea or our indians spear salmon in the lakes sometimes the table was graced with immense apple pies or saucers full of preserved peaches and pears but it was always sure to boast an enormous dish of balls of sweetened dough fried in hog's fat and called doughnuts or olykicks a delicious kind of cake at present scarce known in this city except in genuine dutch families the tea was served out of a majestic delft teapot ornamented with paintings of fat little dutch shepherds and shepherdesses tending pigs with boats sailing in the air and houses built in the clouds and sundry other ingenious dutch fantasies the bows distinguished themselves by their adroitness in replenishing this pot from a huge copper tea-kettle which would have made the pygmy macaronis of these degenerate days sweat merely to look at it to sweeten the beverage a lump of sugar was laid beside each cup and the company alternately nibbled and sipped with great decorum until an improvement was introduced by a shrewd and economic old lady which was to suspend a large lump directly over the tea-table by a string from the ceiling so that it could be swung from mouth to mouth an ingenious expedient which is still kept up by some families in albany but which prevails without exception in communipaw bergen flatbush and all our uncontaminated dutch villages at these primitive tea-parties the utmost propriety and dignity of deportment prevailed no flirting nor coquetting no gambling of old ladies nor hoyden chattering and romping of young ones 
no self-satisfied struttings of wealthy gentlemen with their brains in their pockets nor amusing conceits and monkey divertissements of smart young gentlemen with no brains at all on the contrary the young ladies seated themselves demurely in their rush-bottomed chairs and knit their own woolen stockings nor ever opened their lips excepting to say ja mein Herr, or ja ja vrouw to any question that was asked of them behaving in all things like decent well-educated damsels as to the gentlemen each of them tranquilly smoked his pipe and seemed lost in contemplation of the blue and white tiles with which the fireplaces were decorated wherein sundry passages of scripture were piously portrayed tobit and his dog figured to great advantage haman swung conspicuously on his gibbet and jonah appeared most manfully bouncing out of the whale like harlequin through a barrel of fire the parties broke up without noise and without confusion they were carried home by their own carriages that is to say by the vehicles nature had provided them excepting such of the wealthy as could afford to keep a wagon the gentlemen gallantly attended their fair ones to their respective abodes and took leave of them with a hearty smack at the door which as it was an established piece of etiquette done in perfect simplicity and honesty of heart occasioned no scandal at that time nor should it at the present if our great-grandfathers approved of the custom it would argue a great want of reverence in their descendants to say a word against it end of section twenty two